Hey everyone, Eric here. Just a quick update before we get to today's show. We recently conducted a survey of our readers and the number one request that came back was to have transcripts of the podcast. So we went out, found a service that does this, and now we offer subscribers full transcripts of every show. So when you sign up for a subscription to CAP, you'll get the transcripts, full access to thousands of articles in our archives that are all indexed by country and keyword, Plus, of course, the daily newsletter that arrives in your inbox every morning at 6 a.m. Washington time. Subscriptions are super affordable at just $75 for students and teachers and $149 for everyone else. Just go to ChinaAfricaProject.com slash subscribe. Once again, that's ChinaAfricaProject.com slash subscribe. The China in Africa podcast is brought to you in partnership with the Africa-China Reporting Project at Wits University in Johannesburg. The ACRP aims to improve the quality of reporting on Africa-China relations through reporting grants, workshops, and other opportunities for journalists. More information at africachinareporting.co.za and our dedicated training website at africachinatraining.com. Hello and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast, a proud member of the Syndicate Network from SubChina. I'm Eric Olander, and as always, I'm joined by Kobus van Staden, the senior China-Africa researcher at the South African Institute of International Affairs in Johannesburg, South Africa. A very good afternoon to you, Kobus. Good afternoon. Today, we're going to be heading back up into the Middle East. And this is part, again, of our broadening of the lines, because if you're just looking at Africa in a silo and not looking at what the Chinese are doing in these other regions, you're missing quite a bit. In fact, uh, we did a story yesterday, and this is kind of funny, where uh, we talked about uh, Wang Yi's visit to Cambodia this week, where he's on a four-nation week-long tour of Southeast Asia and up to Korea as well. And while he was in Cambodia, he handed over a $127 million stadium. And I got a couple emails from some of our subscribers in Africa who had no idea that China does stadium diplomacy in other parts of the world. So I think that's part of what it is, is to really understand what the Chinese are doing outside of the silos that maybe we are in when we focus so much on Africa, and certainly in terms of what the Chinese are doing in other parts of the world. So today, we're going to talk about Israel. This is the first time that we have actually focused on Israel. We've done a number of shows on what China's doing in the Persian Gulf, in other parts of the Middle East, certainly in North Africa, but never on Israel. Israel has been in the headlines quite a bit over the past few months, really. It really peaked last month when cybersecurity company FireEye reported that there was a large-scale coordinated cyber attack that targeted both the Israeli government and the private sector and they believe it originated from China. In fact, FireEye says that the Chinese intelligence services, including the powerful Ministry of State Security, use server loopholes to steal technology data and classified business information. So they weren't going after government data, they were going after commercial data. And it's believed that the Chinese were targeting cybersecurity secrets, renewable energy ideas, agricultural technologies, 5G communications, and these are all areas that the Israelis are especially strong. And that may come as a surprise in part because since the 90s, there's been a steady, gradual improvement in China-Israel ties. And so the idea that China is now attacking so brazenly is a little bit of a surprise, but tensions have started to simmer in recent years over the Arab-Israeli issue as well. Quickly, just to bring you up to date on where we are 
Going back to the 1950s, Israel was in fact the first country in the Middle East to recognize the PRC as the legitimate government of China, but diplomatic ties between the two countries were not established until 1992. And it's interesting because back in Beijing, when I was living there, I went to an event at the Israeli embassy. And this is a line you hear a lot when you when Chinese and Israelis get together, diplomatically at least, that these are the two oldest civilizations on the planet. They love to talk about that. The oldest continuous civilizations, the Jewish culture and Chinese culture. And so there's always been that bond on the civil, civilizational side. But when it comes to geopolitics, there's been a lot of tensions. And that dates all the way back to the Mao era, when uh, when China long supported third world national liberation movements, and that has always brought the Chinese much more in alignment with the Palestinians and the PLO and people like Yasser Arafat. Fast forward to today, this is a high-tech relationship, $16 billion in two-way trade between, uh, between Israel and China. Israel buys a lot more from China than it sells, $11.7 billion of imports, $4.24 billion of exports last year, and also there is now a big infrastructure relationship between the two sides. And that's not going to be a surprise to anybody who follows what the Chinese are doing. But it's making people in Israel very, very nervous. And it also makes Israel's main ally in the United States nervous. We're going to talk about the port of Haifa. But there was an interesting editorial that came out in the Jerusalem Post uh, this past uh, two weeks ago. It was a column, actually, by the Israeli Builders Association Vice President Zakiva David, and here's what he wrote, Kobus. The Israeli government must establish a set of laws and regulations that will protect the Israeli construction and infrastructure industry from a Chinese takeover. And this should happen immediately, he said. What is important for Israel needs to be built by Israelis. That's a sentiment, I think, Kobus, that would resonate quite well in many parts of Africa as well. Yeah, I mean, that's certainly something that, that many South African construction industry insiders are saying. Um, but it also shows how China's role in the world is not necessarily kind of bespoke, uh, tailored to particular countries that, you know, kind of similar issues show up in many different places at once, even in relatively rich, you know, kind of and, and well-developed countries like like Israel with strong domestic industries. We, we, we see these similar kind of anxieties pop up in local industries as you do in, in much weaker countries in, in, in you know, in, in regions like Africa. So, you know, so, so it's very interesting to see this kind of twinning, particularly, you know, as it also relates to infrastructure and then the, the wider Belt and Road initiative. And there's a very complex diplomatic relationship going on between China, Israel, the United States, the Palestinians. And then the Israelis, uh, you know, are also in the middle of other dilemmas in the Middle East, namely with Iran and Syria. And the Chinese have been much more active in that region as well. Chinese Foreign Minister Wang Yi has made a number of trips to the region and he started speaking out a lot more on the Arab-Israeli issues, trying to position China as a broker of some kind. And it was very interesting because when that happened, when, when Wang Yi said he wanted to do that, uh, our friend Professor Jonathan Fulton in, in the United Arab Emirates said, this is not something that anybody's actually asked for in the region. So what's the point here? So let's get a perspective on all of these different aspects from Tuvia Gehring, who's a China research fellow at the Jerusalem Institute for Strategy and Security, and somebody I've been following on Twitter for a long time and have wanted to have on the show for, for quite some time. So a very good afternoon to you, Tuvia, from Jerusalem. Good afternoon to you. It's great to be here. 
It's wonderful to have you on the program. And again, just to start opening up this conversation about what the Chinese are doing and the complexities of the relationship with Israel. Why don't, before we get too deep into some of the contemporary issues, let's start with that 1950s relationship and work our way back. Give us a little bit of an overview of the history of the China-Israeli relationship that we can then use as a foundation for the rest of our conversation. Sure. So... As you said, Israel was the first country to recognize China in the Middle East, but the recognition was not mutual. Um, they were kind of like cross, uh, kind of star-crossed lovers that uh, were just not meant to be, in a sense that there was always a third party that intervened between their love. So most of the time it was the U.S., but uh, to a lesser extent, it was also the Soviet Union and the Arab and Muslims world. So uh, I'd like to correct one thing you said. It wasn't uh, that China was always supportive of the Palestinians. Uh, in the beginning, Israel was a socialist country almost. It was very leftist, and it was more leaning to the Soviet side than to the Western world. And China signed Israel a, a power, well, not a power yet, but a country that could be joining the Soviet uh, Union. So it wasn't always so acrimonious. But then, after the Korean War, there was a very strong lobby in the United States and uh, among Jews uh, that live in the United States to uh, rescind the diplomatic relations or the recognition between Israel and China. And a couple of years later, after the Bandung Conference in 55, uh, China did the math and it saw that on one hand you have a tiny Jewish state and on the other hand you have the entire Arab League that boycotts the Jewish state. And they sided with them uh, from then on. And moving forward to the more ideological phase of China's foreign policy, as you've said in the introduction, they supported all these radical movements. And at first they didn't uh, have any direct connections with the Palestinians. Uh, it was more through conduits like uh, Nasser. Uh, but then in the 60s, they started to ramp up the, these connections. And in 65, the Palestinian Liberation Organization's chairman, uh, Ahmad Shukari, he visited China. It was a very big deal. He visited with the chairman and he was welcomed by a crowd of over 100,000 people. And since then, China has committed uh, to the Palestinians economically and politically and militarily too. By 67, some report says uh, of the IDF that the Palestinians were armed to the teeth, exclusively almost with Chinese weapons. Uh, other reports say uh, they qualified that they didn't use most of these weapons, but still uh, you get the picture of this uh, strong support to the Palestinians. Uh, Mao famously said to the delegation that the imperialists are afraid of the Arabs and China. So they planted, and I'm paraphrasing here, so they planted Israel for you, and Formosa for us, Formosa is Taiwan. And you, the Arabs and Palestinians, are the front door to this great Asian continent. And uh, Taiwan or Formosa is the back door. And we must fight them. So apropos what you said on the connectivity of the whole region. Um, so in the 70s, they cut back these connections with the Palestinians because of the Cultural Revolution, because turmoil uh, among the Palestinians. And also the rapprochement between uh, the United States and China. Uh, so Israel also began uh, to rekindle the ties. And in, from 78, something pretty amazing happened. That's the first year of the reform and opening. And back then, if you recall, that was uh, the height of the Sino-Soviet split. 
And China needed weapons, was about to fight in Vietnam. And who would sell Soviet weapons if the Soviets are not going to do it? Uh, the Americans won't do it because they don't have any. But then Israel uh, is one country that did have the opportunity. Israel fought from its establishment against Soviet weapons. And not only that, they also upgraded many of these weapons and improved them. And they were very happy and eager to sell these weapons to China. And the United States were all for it. And over the next two decades, until the establishment of relations in 92, uh, between one to two billion dollars worth of uh, weapons were sold to China uh, through the back door, over 60 transactions, until the establishment of relations. And from then on, uh, this uh, militarily and security relations continued uh, somewhat with the blessing of the United States. But then, in the turn of the century, uh, you had two high-profile cases where Israeli security industry uh, wanted to sell or upgrade uh, weapons to China. And the United States said, hold the brakes. This has to stop. Uh, back then, uh, China and the United States had the third confrontation in the, over the Taiwan Strait, the crisis in 97. Uh, and then uh, you also had more uh, high-profile uh, conflicts between China and the United States, and they pressured Israel basically to cancel the deals. And after the deals were signed, and not only that, you had Jiang Zemin, who was the uh, leader of China, he had visited Israel for five days. Just try to imagine, the leader of China visited tiny Israel for five days, and his toadness was floating on the Dead Sea and taking pictures and smiling, and then he needs to hear that the deal he wanted so much was cancelled because of the Americans. And obviously China was pretty angry with Israel, but they blamed the United States for this intervention, and uh, relations continued to more economic sides that are more benign to agriculture and health. And then, in the last decade, we had another turn of events. Uh, if we continue this... Uh, a metaphor of uh, lovers. So the last decade was the honeymoon. And it just prospered. The two sides, Israel and China, were able to rebrand their relations to innovation, cooperation. And from then on, you see this massive spike of Chinese investments in technology. For example, back in 2015, 40% of Israel venture capital came from China. In 2016, you had a 13-fold, 1-3, increase in Chinese investment in the country. And just to get the relative size, if you take all the 16 plus 1 uh, countries in the Central uh, Asia and Eastern Europe, uh, China invested more in Israel than it did for these countries at that time. And this trend continued until 2018, and from there we saw a kind of a decline. But still you get a pretty clear picture that China was very interested in Israel. Israel obviously was very interested in China uh, as an investor, as a partner. But then the mother-in-law intervened again, if we continue the metaphor. And uh, Trump got into office, and he fired the first salvo of the trade war in 2018. And from then on, every day almost, every other day, I've been reading reports by Israelis journalists and by American journalists and think tankers and policymakers that say this triangle of China, Israel, and US, something here is wrong. Uh, they say that 
China is buying Israeli economy. They use metaphors like China is an octopus, China is a dragon, China is a panda. Uh, you get the picture. Uh, China is too involved. The debt trap diplomacy sometimes comes. The Cold War sometimes appears. And it's a complete mess. And that's something I would love to clarify uh, in this show uh, to kind of pull everyone back from the stratosphere to the ground. So updating to today, we were seeing both, we were seeing um, enhanced interest in China to, to, to take on a bigger role um, in the Middle East, both in, in relation to, you know, to, to a larger kind of superpower presence in the world and also through the, the Belt and Road Initiative. So I was wondering how these moves are viewed within Israel. Like what, 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 is, the, what is the view of, of how Israel might fit into the Belt and Road Initiative? And, you know, kind of what, how, how is China's general kind of larger presence in the region seen? Israel welcomes Chinese involvement. Um, I remember an interview with the uh, lady, she's responsible for the competition uh, authority. She was also the head of the centralization committee of the economy. And she said, very simply, having China operate in Israel is a no-brainer for her. She sees it as a blessing, it's a boon, it increases the competition for tenders, it makes them better, it's good for everybody in the Israeli market. And it's very clear, uh, Israel sees in China a great opportunity for diversification, uh, both economically and politically, and a source of strength for our comprehensive resilience. And we can even look just a, a little bit back on the context. The pivot to Asia uh, in the last decade, when it was just called the rebalancing to Asia under uh, uh, Clinton, it, it came in a very opportune time for Israel. Uh, and also the Belt and Road Initiative in 2013. So back then, uh, there was the financial crisis uh, of 2008 and the weakening of the European market on the one hand. And in Israel, it was felt very strongly. In 2011, we had a huge social movement, one of the biggest in our country's history, protesting against the high living costs. And back then, you also had uh, the boycott, divestment and sanctions movement uh, gaining traction in Europe and North America, started in 2005. And if you recall, uh, Obama administration and Netanyahu, the former prime minister, they weren't getting along too well. And then when you look to the East, all of a sudden, you notice that there's the fastest growing major economy in the world, and it's looking for you. So what do you do? You approach to it. And in 2013, Netanyahu visited China, and a week later, the government passed a decision, 251, uh, to strengthen the relationship, the economic relationship between China and Israel. And it wasn't just China, it's important to emphasize, it was also India and also Brazil. So three of the BRIC countries that were just, uh, I've just met this week, and they were looking to diversify and uh, increase the cooperation with them. And as you mentioned, I think in the beginning, uh, about the Israeli and Chinese uh, politicians, uh, many of them like to say that they're ancient civilization. So that's great for soft power uh, moves, but uh, still the main ideas that they do want to emphasize is the compatibility of the two economies. So on one hand, you have China, which 
with its huge infrastructure base. And on the other hand, you have Israel, which doesn't have a strong infrastructure base, but a lot of innovation. In 2014 or 2015, it was ranked as a top most innovative country in the world, maybe second to the U.S., um, and Israel is also an export economy. Our workforce is pretty expensive, but China is relatively cheaper. And, you know, it's a match made in heaven. That's, I think, Netanyahu said it. So in Israel, we do the zero from, from zero to one, and China takes the one to a hundred. And that's how they marketed it. That's how they promoted it. And that's how it's been going on since 2013. But if I could, if I could just stop you. So I think Kobus was also referring to the political side. And not once have I seen, and you probably will know much more about this than I, than I do in terms of any positive response from the Israelis about active Chinese involvement in the Arab-Israeli political peace process. Let's put aside the innovation, the economy. Yes, they're a match made in heaven. That works really well. But on the politics, it's much more complicated. I haven't been reading that it's that lovey-dovey, hunky-dory, everything's wonderful on the political side. People are nervous in Israel because of China's ability to play all sides of the table in the Persian Gulf and the Middle East. Yeah, so I, I don't think you're wrong. I quite agree with what you said. But the crux of the issue is that Israel and China were, are able to live in a make-believe reality that they can separate between the economic and the security and political aspects of their relationship. And why I call it a make-believe? Because people are beginning to realize that this segregation is not uh, something that can comport for the future of the relations. And it is true that many in Israel are worried of China's geopolitical in involvement and their inroads in the region. And they are worried about China's involvement with Iran. Uh, and that's something that uh, has been top concern for policymakers here. And when Bennett visited the White House uh, last month, China was one of the th top three things he was going to discuss with uh, Biden because of the concern that uh, is a C, Chinese geopolitical and security involvement. And as the foreign minister and alternate prime minister Lapid said, uh, he said something like this, uh, that we're, we are concerned about uh, China's Involvement in the region, he said that uh, they share the Americans' concern too. But because we're playing for the long run, we try to maintain good economic relations with China. But still, when the Americans talk, when the Americans talk, we listen. Just to drill down on that a little bit, to which extent do you feel the Israelis? who are concerned about the Chinese involvement um, in the Middle East and the Americans who are also concerned about that, to which extent do you, are their concerns the same? And to which extent is there a, a kind of a gap between American concerns about this issue and Israeli concerns about it? So it's a great question. The gap couldn't be greater, if I need to sum it shortly. Well, in the U.S., China is front and center of policy and kind of became a MacGuffin for anything from industrial policy to foreign policy to education. In Israel, it's not really a big issue. Um, in Israel, China is something that's still a niche. Uh, it doesn't uh, concern the average Israeli too much. It's still more uh, orientalized in reports and uh, for this reason, I mean, we had the four election cycles in the last two years, and 
in none of them, China was mentioned as an issue on the agenda. None. And while you will read many uh, Israeli journalists uh, that will try to exaggerate or uh, sound the alarm on Chinese involvement, uh, you have to remember that they are committing the primordial sin of journalism, and that is counting too much on American journalists. And by looking at China through American prisms, they also share their alarm, but it's still limited to this sector. And it's very detached from reality and from people that actually deal with China on a day-to-day basis, and that's the diplomats in Israel and the businessmen. And for their perspective, they're trying to lower the flames. And uh, for example, today, as we speak, uh, Matan Vilnai, who is a general, an uh, erstwhile uh, general in Israel, who was also a minister and our ambassador to China, between 2014 and 18, if I recall, he said in this uh, op-ed in Mariv that everybody chill. No need to be afraid from China and your alarmism does uh, no good to anyone. China is an important partner. It's a good partner to have and Israel doesn't have a, a, what's the word? It can't allow itself to uh, decouple from China. It's something that is completely unrealistic. So let's stay with that a little bit. And that brings us up to the port of Haifa, because there's been a lot of concern in Washington about China's involvement in the port of Haifa. Can you talk to us a little bit about what the situation is in Haifa, why people are concerned, and is the concern, in your view, legitimate? So just a a short background. Shanghai International Group, Port Group, SIPG, so it won tender in 2015 to operate a portion of the port in Haifa for 25 years, so this lease. And also, uh, China Harbor, it's a different uh, state-owned company, it is now building the new port in Ashdod. So in Israel, we have three main ports. We have one in Haifa, one in Ashdod, and one in Elat, a port region, and, and they are operated by different companies. In 2015, before Trump got into office, before the whole big issue of China and America, SIPG won the tender. And by the way, was the only one who participated in the tender for the Haifa port. And it was a good bid. And now it became the point of consternation in the Israeli United States and China triangle. And I believe that many of the worries are not very legitimate. Their arguments sometimes range from spurious speculations to really factual errors and flat-out demagoguery uh, to generate and distort the image of China among the public opinion and decision-makers. And in Israel and in the U.S. they do that. And Beijing is depicted like an enemy of Israel of grave security risk. I uh, saw this week in the national interest. They says Beijing is the, one of the biggest security concerns of Israel. It's not. And really, since 2018, I've been literally reading every other day half-baked statements such as China is trying to take over the world, China is a grave security threat to Israel, we have to choose side, tread carefully, and, and so on and so forth. And how it started, and that is a fascinating masterclass in journalism. The catalyst was the conference in the University of Haifa in August 2018, led by Professor Rear Admiral, a retired Shaul Chorev. Uh, with the attendance of the conservative Hudson Institute's retired admiral and ex-chief of the U.S. Naval Operation, Gary Raffed, 
They basically warned that the Chinese presence in Haifa and Ashdod raises security concerns about anchoring of the sixth fleet of the US Navy on the Israeli shoreline, and that the Chinese port operators could monitor US ship movements, and that Israel becomes basically a piece, a bolt in the Chinese uh, chessboard of the Belt and Road Initiative in its string of pearls, uh, and in a, you know, it's a big case of the US-China conflict. Um, so from then on, you had some local uh, journalists pick up this meeting in Haifa in 2018, and then it was translated by the Jerusalem Post. And from there, it was copied to Aharetz in the Times of Israel and crossed the Atlantic to the United States. And then in the United States, soon you hear people going all the way up to the Senate talking about the Haifa port. And even it, and then it uh, recalled back to here and the head of Shin Bet, the head of the Israeli um, internal uh, security agency, Nadav Gaman, in January 2019, and later the head of the National Security Council, Meir Ben Shabbat, also warned about the Haifa port. And then Bolton, John Bolton, when he was still in office, he warned uh, Netanyahu about it too. And according to some reports, even Trump talked about this uh, with Netanyahu. And it, it just turned to be a big mess. And the snowball continued to roll and roll until today that we had the head of the CIA last month, Bill Burns, visit Israel and discuss the Haifa port. And it is surrounded with so many myths that I'll be very happy to uh, break right now. So contrary to the reports, China did not gain control of the port. Unlike Greece or Hambantote, Israel has no issue of depth. We're not. We're doing a pretty fine condition, alhamdulillah. It only manages the operation of a portion of the port, less than 10% of it, uh, two wharfs to be exact, about 800 meters long. The Israeli regulators still have the final say on what ships can come and what ships can go. And more than that, although they want the operation, it is Israeli workers that mostly operate the port. And another point that was made in many of these reports it, that it wasn't vetted by the security mechanisms in Israel. And that is not true. Israel extensively vetted the Chinese proposal and found the security risk manageable. Uh, we had the spokesperson of the Ministry of Transport in 2014. Before the bid even started, they uh, handled consultations with the um, Authority of Ports in Israel and the Israeli uh, port company. And they also had participants from the IDF, from the Shin Bet, and from uh, police and other security apparatus, and they all uh, gave their opinions. And the deal between Israel and the Shanghai International Port Group also has a security clause that is classified, so I don't know what's in it. But I believe that it talks about the ability of the Shin Bet to come and go as they please into the port to vet uh, the Chinese involvement. And another point that was made by many reports is that the U.S. did not know about the Chinese port until, until after the fact. So to that, Captain Igal Maor, who's the director of the administration of the shippings and ports, he's the regulator and has been uh, the regulator of the whole field, the whole sector in Israel for the last 10 years. So when they started the bidding process the last decade, they went to the Americans, he says that they basically groveled on their bellies for them to work here. They told them that the Chinese 
are going to win this tender. So they went to a roadshow in the United States to talk personally with two of the biggest companies in the world that operate ports. And even the Minister of Transport, Israel Katz, he invited the American ambassador and asked him to lobby the American companies to come and work here. They really wanted them to have. They didn't want the Chinese option. They were more than eager to have the Americans. But there was absolutely no approach to him as the regulator, not even once during the Obama administration uh, for investment. And they also say that's a legitimate concern that the Chinese now with the physical presence uh, be much more easier for them to spy and to monitor a uh, movement. So if you, uh, you told me in the beginning that you used to live in Haifa, yes. uh, Eric, so you know exactly you can view anywhere from Haifa because it's, um, it's, on a hill. it's a city that is on a hill, right? So you can basically go anywhere around and see what kind of ships are coming and going uh, without having to build a port to do that. And that's a big issue with the United States is that it tries to hold Israel to a higher standard than itself. And that is something that not just just for infrastructure. So you have Chinese state-owned enterprises hold ownership stakes in terminals at five U.S. ports. You have Costco. It established joint ventures in Long Beach, Los Angeles, Seattle. And you have another state-owned company. I forgot its name. It works with a French company in Miami and Houston. And not even mention the heavy Chinese presence in Naples, that is the headquarters of the U.S. Navy uh, Sixth Fleet. And, uh, and also, you know, in uh, Seattle base, if uh, you're familiar, they have the naval base uh, Kitsap in Bermonton, and it serves the entire uh, U.S. Navy's fleet throughout the Pacific Northwest, and it's the biggest uh, port where they fix all the boats there. And also you can see from there, all the ships and all the aircraft carriers are coming and going. And there are plenty of Chinese presence on the Mediterranean to share. And they help me out here. They have in uh, Suez, they have in Rotterdam, they have in Antwerpen, Rabona, Valencia, Bilbao, uh, Piraeus, where they completely own the port, not just lease a tiny portion of it for 25 years. And these are NATO companies, mind you, uh, that are also very close to the United States. So if they have this presence in American ports, the United States just can come here one uh, bright day and say, I'm American, I have money, and I'm willing that the Chinese will operate ports on my hand, but I'm not willing for them to do it for you. It's a bit hypocritical. And especially for Israel, when most of our trade, 99%, comes and goes from the sea, we are heavily reliant on the ocean. And so it, the strategic risk of having the Chinese operate infrastructure and build infrastructure here pale in comparison to the strategic benefits that we gain from having them here. And instead of focusing on what we shouldn't do with the Haifa port, they should channel their attention into more, more legitimate risk. And there are legitimate risks. I'm not saying that their concerns are not legitimate. Uh, just moving to the to domestic issues, um, I've seen China kind of cautiously express this, you know, a, a willingness to try and kind of get involved in some form of mediation um, in in the Israeli-Palestinian issues. But we've also seen China criticize Israel in some in some kind of international forums, and Israel also criticizing China for the for the the situation in Xinjiang. So where is that? particular kind of like cooperation or, or kind of, you know, kind of hostility standing standing at the moment? Um, yeah, so it's, it's a good question. So since the diplomatic relations were established 30 years ago between Israel and China, uh, there's been this tacit understanding, 
quote unquote, between uh, the two countries, under which Israel has learned to accept China's conflicting behavior uh, over pragmatic considerations. So Beijing, in this agreement, is allowed to continue its longstanding vocal support for the Palestinians and even criticize Israel on international platforms. In order to curry favor with the Muslim and Arab countries, it can portray itself as a responsible power, claim to be a champion of the global south and developing world. But when it comes to international probes into human rights and to other sensitive matters, each side should mind its own business. And at the same time, Israel de facto banned Chinese companies from our digital infrastructure, but it still does not side with the exclusive um, initiatives from the Americans, like the Clean Network Initiative. And similarly, Israel allows Chinese to uh, build here infrastructure and ports, and uh, but still it does not become an official member of the Belt and Road Initiative. So through this intricate dance that China and Israel managed to strike this balance against all these exogenous pressures and maintain a very cooperative, if not cordial, relationship. However, China breached this mutual agreement during the recent fighting in Gaza in uh, May 2021. Uh, as the rotating president of the UN Security Council, China has not only prompted five meetings against Israel, but it also given state media, diplomats, uh, CCP members, popular bloggers and nationalists free reign to lash out against Israel, sometimes with highly anti-Semitic and anti-Zionist vitriol. Furthermore, while emphasizing its sincere friendship, quote, with the, Palesti with the Palestinians, uh, China places blame especially on Israel, quote again, and has consistently failed to emphasize with Israeli civilians. And that's something I wrote in my piece to the Asia Times. And, and you know, China is not afraid to voice its opposition to terror in Afghanistan, uh, as we see now every other day, but it fails to recognize the Palestinian terror Israelis have been facing and suffering for a century. Uh, to make matters worse, Beijing is keeping the Iranian nuclear deal afloat by providing a lifeline to this tyrannical regime that underwrites Israeli adversaries and promises on a weekly basis to wipe us off the map, uh, making uh, it very impossible for me to record more podcasts in the future. So this Chinese co-sponsoring, uh, for example, of the UN, uh, uh, that's what uh, you mentioned, Kobus, in your question, the UN uh, Human Rights Council, uh, the irony wasn't lost on Israel when it voted with the Canadian uh, initiative on uh, China's uh, abuses of human rights in Xinjiang and uh, Hong Kong and Tibet. Uh, because a month earlier, China itself was co-sponsoring, uh, using this forum, an international commission to investigate Israel over the May uh, conflict. So... Uh, I, I don't think this is a good uh, direction that Israel and China are uh, going through. And I also don't agree with the reports in Israel and the US that says that Israel has done some sort of policy shift on this regard. I don't think it was a policy shift, uh, quite the opposite. I think it was a signal to China to return to the status quo of how relations were. Uh, do this under this tacit agreement where, you know, China can still criticize Israel, but it can enjoy the bystander effect when it's one voice of many. But when it leads these initiatives against Israel, now it breaks the rules of the game. So that's something that is not good both for Israel and for China. But that's probably not going to happen that the Chinese are going to go back to the status quo. That was a different era. That was not under Xi Jinping, that status quo. That was under Hu and Jiang and previous presidents. 
it seems that that she is taking a much more assertive line, particularly in the Middle East, and wants to really be a player in this region. Maybe not to replace the United States on that level, but it definitely wants to have a much larger role. And as you've pointed out, it's taking a side here. It's clearly aligning itself with the Palestinians, with Iran, with Syrians. And that's why I think going back to your point about some of the concerns within the U.S. and the Israeli defense establishment, okay, maybe their concerns on some of the issues related to Haifa, for example, are misplaced. But their concerns about China's general direction in terms of its geopolitics with regards to Israel don't seem to be uh, inappropriate in, in any way, given what you've just outlined and the passion with which you, you articulated that. Yeah, so I, I should have qualified my passion just a bit. Uh, we return again to this split identity of China, of Jekyll and Hyde. Okay, I don't remember which one is the good guy, but it is very natural for China to act this way. And Israelis understand it from pragmatic considerations. Again, uh, voting in favor of Israel would place China on par with the U.S., it's Israel's closest, closest ally, so it doesn't want to do that. And again, China is obligated to the Palestinian cause in the global south as a result of this historic inertia. And it does not want to draw the ire of Muslim and Arab world that has still have not normalized relations with Israel. And also, uh, before it broke the agreement, quote-unquote, in May, uh, China took advantage of this bystander effect I was talking about, uh, being one voice of many, and it can still continue to do that. Uh, I mean, Israel were... Uh, gladly accepting this reality. Uh, it's unfortunate, but uh, I think now that the new prime minister uh, and the foreign minister want to change uh, this, uh, they want to align themselves more with the US, talk about more about the value and a constructivist perspective, and I think this is a wrong decision to make uh, because Israel clearly doesn't enjoy any moral uh, moral ground when it comes to international relations and the Palestinians and human rights. So it's a lost battle. Uh, but then again, as, as you mentioned, China under Xi Jinping is changing. So it's really not clear what direction will China choose to go to. Will it continue on this line to be more a vociferous supporter of the Palestinians and push Israel under the bus uh, just so they can hit the Americans and uh, curry favor with the Muslims? Or they will continue this status quo that, again, it is in the long-term interest of China to maintain good relations with Israel. As much as we need them, they also need us. We have a lot to offer to them. You know, just in relation to that, how is is the situation in Xinjiang reported within Israel? Like, what 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 are the kind of discourses within Israel when they look at the Xinjiang situation? So, as I said before, Israelis mostly rely on their China reportage on uh, Western and specifically American reporting. So it's more of the same here. You see, Haaretz, there are very uh, severe critiques of the Xinjiang affair. Uh, but still, there's not a lot of understanding. It, it, it didn't uh, raise into the political sphere. It's still a very niche subject. But you can understand why people are a little bit confused that the Israelis, who, who also come under intense criticism at the United Nations for human rights abuses in Palestinian territories, for the bombings, 
again, I'm, I'm not trying to take a side here. I'm just reflecting the, the discourse that happens here and that the Israelis for in their behavior in the occupied territories and in parts of the West Bank have faced enormous criticism for their treatment of the Arab population, which is Muslim. And so the idea that then they are siding with the United States on the poor treatment of Muslims in China just feels a little bit weird to an outside observer who doesn't understand the politics. Right, right. I, I totally agree. So on, on the issue of human rights, there are just cold realist arguments that they take precedence over the moral duty of the Jewish state as people who have suffered genocide to protest against the injustice that is being perpetrated against the Uyghurs. Uh, or uh, necessity, necessity to position Israel as a member of the Liberal Democratic States Club. Because, as you said, any human rights front Israel opens against China is doomed to fail. Uh, and in contrast to other Western countries that criticize China over human rights, there is a global consensus against Israel over the issue with the regard to the Palestinians. So, you know, even when China criticizes Israel over human rights uh, while it's perpetrating what it does to the Uyghurs in Xinjiang, everyone in the United Nations will clap their hands and uh, approve. And the last thing that Israel needs is for China to deploy the world's largest propaganda apparatus to intensify the international pressure that already exists and to initiate the support for the currently non-existent indigenous PDS movement or to strengthen the anti-Semitism, anti-Zionist and MIEC every week now uh, online. And it is very tempting to draw a connection between the Palestinians and the Uyghurs and many have done so, also in China by the way, and you are welcome to view in CNKI, just write uh, these two keywords. It is very interesting to see. But uh, beyond the virtue signaling, I don't think there's a very good comparison, and I'll stop at that. You know, so so uh, another another kind of site of, of anxiety is is China's relationship with Iran, and we've seen a lot of also kind of you know kind of unfounded reporting, a lot of kind of speculation around what's the exact deals being made between China and Iran. So I was wondering, like, what what Israel makes of of the current China Iran situation. Hmm. Yes, so Israel indeed is worried about Chinese involvement in Iran. It is China that single-handedly kept this regime afloat during the, the maximum pressure campaigns of Trump. And Israeli observers do look at the security cooperation, which includes the arms sales, uh, which stopped uh, after 2015, as far as I'm aware, unless there are uh, some deals that are under the radar, according to some reports. And uh, then you have this 25-year comprehensive cooperation agreement uh, between Iran and uh, China, and that also drew the attention of many in Israel. And they, and and again, we have this alarmist, very alarmist reports that you know we have a, a new uh, axis of evil forming. And uh, last uh, last week, I read something that you know in this axis of evil, China is the underwriter or something like that. And in my writings, I try to calm everyone down and you know, bring him back to reality. And you've discussed the deal quite uh, in quite length in your show with uh, Bill Figuera. Uh, so I don't think we need to get into too much uh, details in this, but it is still a very big concern. And, and the biggest implication for Israel is more on the symbolic and diplomatic fronts. As a Chinese media scholar, uh, Zhou Zhuqiang, he wrote uh, pretty recently that the relations between China in the Middle East are becoming institutionalized by the day. So Israel doesn't want to see this kind of regime institutionalized. And by the way, nor does GCC countries, nor Egypt, that they are also on the business end of Iran's guns. But there's really not a whole lot they can do about it, though, right? 
Yeah, yeah, that, that is the reality. Again, we have to face reality and remember, uh, we like to think of ourselves as a big superpower, but Israel is tiny and we don't have a lot that we can do. Uh, and yet, but yet, now some things have changed, some things have changed. And that is thanks to the Abraham Accords. The Abraham Accords is a game changer in that it creates this block of countries uh, with Israel and uh, moderate Sunni countries in Egypt, and now they can leverage this new connection over China that has very big interests, as we all know, in the region, both in Israel and the moderate Sunni states. And it's also in China's interest to have a peaceful uh, Middle East. The, the main problem here is that we have a regime that is authoritarian against its own people, and it supports all these revolutionary, quote-unquote, uh, terror organizations in Yemen and in Iraq and on our border with the Hezbollah and Hamas. And they undermine this peace and stability that China needs for a Belt and Road Initiative to succeed. So instead of helping us pressure Iran to change its destructive ways and you know, change the Middle East to this new vision that uh, Paris has envisioned of this new Middle East, uh, we get China that would rather play this geostrategic game to counterbalance the United States. So they keep this regime afloat. Well, let's close our conversation on, uh, again, another very sensitive issues. And I guess you're accustomed to this being an Israeli, that everything <laughs> sure. is a sensitive issue. Everything is sensitive. I mean, sensitive. there's really, there's no light issue. It's, yeah, and b because everything is sensitive, nothing is sensitive. So there's no politically correct here. There is nothing. So we're going to we're gonna end on, a, on, on that note here. But um, when I was studying Chinese, when I first started, I went to Taiwan. And it was interesting because Taiwan's relationships in the late 80s, early 90s, this is prior to uh, Israel recognizing Beijing, uh, Taiwan had close ties with Singapore, South Africa, and, and Israel. And, uh, and, and it was interesting because a, a, a Taiwanese professor of mine, he explained to me that all of those regions had something in common. They are tiny little populations surrounded by hostile neighbors. So Taiwan, obviously right next door to China. Back then, it was the apartheid government of South Africa, a tiny white minority government surrounded by a hostile black population. And obviously in Israel is the Jewish government surrounded by hostile Arab governments. What is the relationship today between Israel and Taiwan, and how does Israel navigate the One China policy? So for Israel, it's very easy. Uh, we also have a Taipei office, like most countries of the world, and we have close connections with Taiwan, and we try to keep it economical and not political and not with the security. But then again, you had some interesting developments recently in uh, July, I believe, uh, we had our annual uh, cyber week in Tel Aviv University and uh, Prime Minister Naftali Bennett, he made this new initiative called the Global Cybernet Shield. And this is kind of an international cybersecurity uh, initiative that, in which he says that like-minded countries could join together because if you try to fight alone, uh, wink, wink, you're going to lose. And it was really surprising to see the following week you had Taiwan's digital minister, Audrey Tang, and uh, foreign minister, Joseph Wu, together, uh, coming out of left field, writing uh, an op-ed to the Jerusalem Post, expressing their eagerness for Israel help. And uh, this self-governed democracy is claimed by Beijing 
is one of the most attacked countries uh, by cyber. Uh, so it makes a lot of sense for it to cooperate with Israel that was also under Chinese attack and has been uh, and uh, has been for a quite a long time, uh, long before the recent reports. Back in 2014, uh, if you can recall, uh, there were some reports that Chinese hackers were able to steal the blueprints for uh, Iron Dome or a weapon that is able to intercept uh, ballistic missiles uh, and rockets, and was also able to steal the blueprints for Arrow 3. Uh, that, that one is uh, for ballistic missiles, sorry. Uh, so it'd be interesting to see how the Israeli government will approach this uh, field if they try to cooperate more on the cyber front. Uh, but other than that, Israel is not different than most other countries. I guess in some respects, the fact that Israel has normal relations with Taiwan is pretty much the only normal thing about what we've talked about today. I mean, this is really, oh, this is this is complex stuff. And and so we really appreciate your time. Tuve Gehring is a China Research Fellow at the Jerusalem Institute for Strategy and Security in Jerusalem. And he is very active on Twitter. Tuve, tell us, everybody, where we can find you on the Twitter. Uh, you're welcome to follow at uh, G-E-R-I-N-G, Gehring. Tuvia, T-U-V-I-A. And yeah, I I try to keep it interesting. And I will put links to some of Tuvia's writings as well as his link to his Twitter handle in the show notes. Also, everybody, just a reminder, uh, for subscribers to the China Africa Projects, there are now full transcripts of all of our shows. So this is particularly relevant for researchers. And if you want to quote what Tuvi is doing, you will have to get a subscription to the China Africa Project. But we are now loading up full transcripts on our website as well. So it's a nice little enhancement. Tuvia, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. Thank you. It was all my pleasure. Kobus, this hour-long discussion is just one hour. But in this hour, you're completely upside down and confused about what's what. And that is the nature of Mideast politics and the Arab-Israeli issue. And I just kept thinking to myself throughout the conversation, Wang Yi and the Chinese are freaking crazy to want to get in the middle of this. They feel way out of their depth. They don't have the historical experience here to, to navigate this. They're playing way out of their league, in my view. I mean, the politics here are so complex, so varied, that I, I just I can't see the upside for them of getting sucked into this. And it doesn't seem like, when you look at it more objectively, that they really are trying to be balanced mediators here. I mean, clearly the Chinese are aligning themselves with people who are hostile to Israel at the end of the day. And I'm amazed that they've been able to do as well as they have in fostering the economic relationship with Israel for as long as they have, given the fact that they are so close to people who really do, as as Tuvia said, they want to destroy and wipe Israel off the map. That has always been quite remarkable to me. But the takeaway here for me is like, holy crap, the the politics are complicated and the Chinese would be well advised to steer as clear as possible. Now, maybe all they want to do is symbolically just use this as a baton to beat the crap out of the Americans. Okay, that I get. That makes sense. But if they genuinely want to get into the Mideast peace process, they're dumber than I thought they could ever possibly be simply because the politics will suck them up. Yeah, I mean, it's it's difficult for me to say you know, kind of whether they really want to, um, you know, and, and or whether whether it's it's more 
just trying to look just trying to look present you know kind of in in the yeah. region you know it's a, it, i think that's probably more yeah. um you know it's it's i think you know as as you say you know it's 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 a it's strategically and politically very complicated but there's obviously a, a lot of money at stake for israel for, for for well for israel but but particularly for china as well you know so so the the kind of connecting connecting the belt and road through this region um, you know, it's, it's clearly very lucrative for them, um, and having you know, trying trying to kind of have friendships with as many of these of these kind of competing partners or, or competing presences in in the region is also clearly very profitable for them. So you know, so so a lot of it may well simply be you know, kind of mostly commercial kind of engagement, and then the way that that China frequently does that kind of like politico-commercial engagement, you know, kind of where, where the bulk of the engagement is actually commercial, but there is some yeah. kind of politics sprinkled in there for, you know, kind of for optics. So let me just now contradict what I just said in terms of that they might be out of their league in this part of the world. I have to give the Chinese an enormous amount of credit, though, on the other side of this, because they have been able to manage relations with rivals on the Sunni-Shia divide. With Saudi Arabia, they're very close. And with Iran, they're very close. They've been able to manage ties with the United Arab Emirates and also Iran. They've been able to go into Israel and to build very robust economic ties. And at the same time, Wang Yi will then go to Damascus. This is all really complicated. And they've been able to ride above not only the sectarian ties, but also the geopolitical ties. And at the same time, you know, the U.S. is in the mix in all of this. So it's Again, it's complicated. They've been able to do a very effective job in all of this. So on the one hand, I think they're crazy for trying to get into the politics. But on the other hand, they seem to be navigating some of these very treacherous waters quite deftly. And, and so I think there's something to be said for that. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's it's a, it's a, as you say, it's a very complicated field. Um, I you know, kind of it, it made a lot more complicated by by as Tuvia pointed out that there is there's a kind of a media back and forth, media conversation, and occasional kind of media mind meld. You know, kind of um, around like a bit between between Israel and the U.S. Um, you know, um, in in terms of, of of narrative production, and also as as we've seen now, as as we discussed in, in relation to the port of Haifa, you know, also you know spokespeople from the from the US military you know taking on very kind of prominent positions there as the US is, is withdrawing from Afghanistan um, and kind of you know there, there's a there's a lot of a lot of it is kind of you know Western Asian presences and Central Asian presence is, is is coming into question so I was wondering how what you think how the how the US is going to be shifting in relation to this and whether People in the U.S. military establishment is going to use a Chinese presence as as a way to kind of maintain a U.S. foothold in the region. Hard to tell. It seems like the focus for the United States, at least on the military side, is going to be in the South China Sea and here in Southeast Asia on in the Pacific. It's going to be a follow up of the Obama pivot to Asia. That does seem to be the direction they're going in. You're hearing a lot more rhetoric about China really leveraging the American withdrawal from Afghanistan and the fact that uh, not only is China using the, the Afghanistan issue to f forge closer ties with Iran, I again, we're going to have a whole show coming up on the Shanghai Cooperation Organization and the fact that Iran is very eager to become a part of that. That's very, very interesting dynamic. They're going to use this as a gateway into uh, Central Asia as well. Interesting, and we didn't have a chance to bring up the question of Turkey, 
that uh, that China's using Afghanistan also to foster closer ties with Turkey. And Turkey has very interesting dynamics on the Xinjiang issue. So all of this kind of circles back. I don't know where the U.S. fits in all of that. It doesn't seem to me that the U.S. has a coherent, cogent view of what it wants to do in this part of the world now that it's left. More importantly to the U.S., it feels like it's consumed by its own politics right now. And we saw that on Capitol Hill uh, just this week when Antony Blinken got a grilling from Congress on the withdrawal. That seems to be where the focus is rather than on what China is doing. And when it comes to confronting China, really it's in in Vietnam where I'm located. We have had nothing but a string of American diplomats all the way from Kamala Harris to the Secretary of Defense, Wendy Sherman from the State Department, one after another coming here on the auspices of confronting China. So this seems to be where the Americans want to put their focus, less so in Central Asia and in South Asia, where I think they're they're done with. They don't want to do that. I'd like to get your take, and he kept coming back to this over and over again, and it really reminded me of a lot of your thinking on these issues in terms of how the Israeli media and the Israeli narratives on China are so influenced by what the United States is saying. We talk about that in an African context all the time, that how in Francophone Africa, it's shaped a lot by what comes out of Paris. The American narratives about debt trap diplomacy are very prominent, and those are picked up quite a bit in Africa. And in the Arabophone countries, it's very much influenced by state narratives. So this idea of how external forces are shaping narratives in terms of China and the understanding of China is something that I think you can really comment and have a lot to say on in an African context. Yeah, it's 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 very interesting. I guess the big difference is that the 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 media establishment in Israel, I think, is just a lot more more powerful. Um, you know, so so I think I think there is. You know, in, in in terms of the kind of narratives that that the U.S. produces about China, powerful. How, by the way, how do you say? Why do you say powerful? Uh, because it's just a richer country. You know, it just has a it just has a bigger, more robust media sector than most African countries. Um, you know, which means that it it it's self generating a lot a lot you know a lot of a lot of its discourse. Um, whereas I think a lot of a lot of what African countries get is essentially a kind of a one size fits all narrative that the U.S. puts out about China in the global south as a whole and then it kind of just gets sent to Africa or it gets kind of tailored to Africa in, in some kind of ways I think I get the, the 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 kind of production of narrative in in this in, with in, in the US about Israel and then in Israel about China and about the US is more complicated I think um, you know and and in, in Africa it frequently just comes down to the the kind of the kind of inertia of the legacy of English language you know kind of mainstream media in Africa the 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 fact that everyone uses AP, for example, um, you know that that's the kind of way that that it kind of circles down. I think, in, in the case of Israel, it's frequently more bespoke, you know, relate, relating directly to Israel specifically. Well, let's leave the conversation there. We told Tuvia at the end of the show that we are going to come back to the topic of Israel, and in part because we do want to keep going into the Middle East and the Persian Gulf and other parts of the global South to really dive into what the Chinese are doing in these different parts of the world, simply because there is so much to be learned by looking at 
again, their engagement in other parts of the global south. So before the end of the year, expect one or two more shows on Israel. We're going to go back to Iran and the SCO, that's the Shanghai Cooperation Organization issue. And we're going to talk a lot more about what's going on here in Southeast Asia as well. So again, trying to draw some lines and connect some dots so that we're looking at Africa within the broader context of the global south and not in a silo that is isolated from what China is doing in those other parts of the world. So let's leave the conversation there. Quick reminder to everybody who is a subscriber. Again, you get access now to full transcripts of the shows. We're starting with the 2021 shows. We'll work on the the back archives uh, a little bit more. But going forward, full transcripts now on the podcast page. This has been a request that we got from a lot of scholars and researchers who wanted to be able to use some of the quotes and the information. So that's something that uh, is available only to subscribers at ChinaAfricaProject.com. Also, you get a daily newsletter. You're getting unique insights from the likes of Cobus and our Africa editor, Cliff Mboya. We also have a China editor as well. And it's really, we're just so excited about the direction that all of this is going. So if you've been on the fence thinking about subscribing, this is a great time. There's a lot going on. We have some amazing expansion plans set for later this year. And next year, some really cool things that I can't tell you about right now, but I just so, so want to, but some really neat things that we have coming up next year as well. So, but you can only find all that out if you're a subscriber. Go to chinaafricaproject.com slash subscribe, and you can try it out free for 30 days. If you don't like it, you can bail anytime. And then you can always let us know if you have any questions. You can find Kobus at Kobus at chinaafricaproject.com, and I'm Eric, E-R-I-C, at chinaafricaproject.com. So that'll do it for this edition of the show. Kobus and I will be back again next week with another episode. Until then, for Kobus van Staden, I'm Eric Olander. Thank you so much for listening. The discussion continues online. Head over to facebook.com slash China Africa Project to share your thoughts on today's show. Or follow the guys on Twitter. Eric's at Iolanda, and you can find Kobus at Stadenesk. For more information about the China Africa Project and to sign up for our free weekly email news brief, go to chinaafricaproject.com. <laughs>